Hi, everyone. I'm Kelly Combs, a partner in the Life Sciences Regulatory Compliance Practice at Ropes & Gray and co-lead of our Ropes & Gray Digital Health Initiative. Welcome to Non-Binding Guidance, a podcast series focused on current trends in FDA regulatory law, as well as other important developments affecting the life sciences industry. I'm here today with my partner, Greg Levine, from the Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice, also based in Washington, D.C., and Sarah Blankstein, a counsel in our practices based in Boston. On today's podcast, we'll discuss FDA's final guidance on clinical decision support software, or CDS, which FDA released on September 28th. For those who need a brief refresh, CDS software was exempted under the 21st Century Cures Act from the statutory definition of medical device and therefore from FDA regulation, so long as it meets four criteria. Number one, it is not intended to acquire, process, or analyze a medical image or signal from an in vitro diagnostic device or a pattern or signal from a signal acquisition system. Number two, it is intended to display, analyze, or print medical information about a patient or other medical information, like clinical practice guidelines. Number three, it's intended to support or provide recommendations to a healthcare professional about prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of a disease or condition. And number four, it's intended to enable HCPs to independently review the basis for the software's recommendations so that the HCPs don't primarily rely on those recommendations when making a clinical diagnosis or treatment decision. To be sure, the practical implications of being exempt from the medical device definition are significant, as it effectively takes the software out of FDA's jurisdiction. That means that FDA requirements like pre-market approval and clearance, registration or listing, and other regulatory obligations did not apply. Even though the statute lays out the four criteria that have to be considered when determining the regulatory status of CDS, this has really been an area rife with complexity. FDA released two draft versions of CDS guidance in 2017 and 2019, and both of those were met with extensive commentary from industry prior to finalizing the guidance last month. Each iteration of the guidance has represented a substantial shift from the prior version, and this final guidance is no exception. We expect a number of changes in the guidance will be controversial and may prompt many software developers to reassess software and light the new guidance. Sarah, let's start with you. Can you speak to some of the key changes from the 2019 final guidance that the industry should be aware of? Happy to, Kelly. So as you noted, the final guidance really is a major shift from the prior draft. FDA has substantially changed its interpretation of three of the four criteria that you mentioned to qualify as non-device CDS. Um, among other things, they abandoned the draft guidance's proposed adoption of the risk-based categorization scheme for software as a medical device. Uh, that was put out by the International Medical Device Regulators Forum, or IMDRF. And that IMDRF criteria had been a source of significant confusion in the 2019 draft. The final guidance also shrinks the scope of the guidance by removing discussion of CDS software intended for patients or caregivers. And it also takes out discussion of provider-directed CDS that don't meet all four of the statutory criteria, but may nonetheless qualify for FDA enforcement discretion. FDA now refers industry to other FDA guidance documents for analysis of patient-directed decision support tools. Looking at the changes to FDA's interpretation of the criteria for CDS to qualify as a non-device, 
the most notable shifts for industry are in the second, third, and fourth criteria. And taken on the whole, I would say that these changes seem to broaden the scope of software FDA considers subject to its regulation as medical device software. Great. Thanks, Sarah, for that helpful overview. Can you give a little more detail on those changes? Of course. Uh, to briefly touch on those changes, the second criterion, that's the criterion that requires software be intended to display, analyze, or print medical information about a patient or other medical information, um, FDA has newly and narrowly interpreted that criterion to restrict it to information that is well understood and accepted, such as information typically communicated in conversation between providers, peer-reviewed clinical studies, and clinical practice guidelines. The third criterion, that's the criterion that software is intended to support or provide recommendations to a healthcare provider about prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of disease. Um, this criterion is one that FDA had previously interpreted relying on the IMDRF risk framework that I had mentioned. Um, and that analysis had rested in significant part on an unhelpful distinction between informing and driving a clinical decision. So FDA has abandoned that approach in the final guidance, adopting a new interpretation asserting most notably that software has to satisfy four conditions, including that it not provide a specific preventative diagnostic or treatment output or directive, and that it not be intended to support time-critical decision-making. So those two requirements are new in this final guidance. And FDA's rationale for adopting those two exclusions turns on the concept of automation bias Automation bias is the tendency to over-rely on an automated system. And according to FDA, this type of bias is more likely to occur if the software provides a single specific output as opposed to a list of options or complete information for the HCP's consideration. And similarly, FDA asserts that time-critical decision-making is going to result in more automation bias because the user doesn't have sufficient time to adequately consider other information. These two new exclusions for specific and time-critical recommendations seemingly could narrow the scope of CDS that FDA doesn't consider to be a medical device. So this was an important change in the final guidance. And as an example of how it might narrow what qualifies as non-device CDS, based on the principle that software providing a specific output doesn't satisfy criterion three, FDA asserts in the guidance that software that provides information that a specific patient may exhibit signs of a disease or condition or identifies a risk probability or risk score for a specific disease or condition would fail under the third criterion. Under the draft guidance, that type of software could have qualified as non-device CDS, at least under some circumstances. And finally, just to touch on the fourth criterion, which FDA also revised substantially, uh, that's the criterion that requires the software to enable healthcare providers to independently review the basis for the software's recommendations. Here, FDA responded to criticism of the draft guidance that had pointed out that the recommendations in the draft guidance for this criterion were vague and difficult to apply. Um, so, in the final guidance, FDA does provide several more tangible recommendations, 
it's burdensome um, on satisfying this criterion. Finally, like many of FDA's software guidances, the CDS guidance does contain a number of examples intended to illustrate FDA's thinking, um, and some of these underscore the more controversial or problematic aspects of the final guidance. Kelly, can you speak to some of the examples in the CDS guidance that you think are particularly noteworthy? Sure. Thanks, Sarah. And, you know, I will state at the outset that there are lots and lots of examples and the guidance, which I think are really helpful, um, you know, to consider as you're thinking through whether, you know, your client software or other software you may be analyzing is subject to FDA regulation. But Sarah, as you suggested, um, you know, the examples do tee up, you know, some of the complexity and in some cases, even some inconsistencies um, in FDA's line of thinking here. So one of the more interesting examples from my perspective is one that really brings home the notion that FDA is narrowing the, the software that qualifies as non-device CDS. Um, and that's due to the reinterpretation of criteria three, which we talked about. Um, and this relates to FDA's interpretation um, to exclude algorithms that provide a single recommendation. So in one example in the guidance, FDA describes software that identifies patients with a possible diagnosis of opioid addiction based on a variety of factors like medical information, family history, prescription patterns, and geographical data. According to FDA, this example does not meet criteria three because it provides a specific diagnostic or treatment output or directive. Therefore, this would be a regulated medical device. Now, interestingly, FDA included the same exact example in its 2019 draft guidance with the added context that the algorithm inputs are not explained. And there in 2019, FDA categorized it as a device CDS only because it failed on the transparency criteria, criterion four. Now, this is an issue back then that could have been cured by providing the user with additional information and the software would then have been considered non-device CDS. Some of the other examples also underscore FDA issues with line drawing when it interprets criterion three to exclude software that provides a quote specific output. For example, the agency describes software that recommends a prioritized list of FDA chemotherapy agents to an HCP based on the patient's diagnosis and demographics from the medical record as non-device CDS. On the other hand, though, software that identifies a specific FDA-approved chemotherapy agent based on the patient's medical record is categorized by FDA as a device because it provides a specific treatment output or directive. Now, practically speaking, it's not clear how a prioritized list that identifies the best option is any different from an algorithm that provides only the best option particularly if the algorithm meets criterion four and explains clearly to the HCP the basis for the recommendation. Moreover, as a practical challenge, what if we have a case where there's only one approved agent for a particular type of cancer or line of treatment? In that case, would FDA think that the software would run afoul of that criteria just by providing that single specific output? Thanks, Kelly. You've given some interesting examples regarding criterion three. But what about criterion four? This is an area where I know many of our clients were really eager for more guidance from FDA. Yeah, and here, you know, I think while we're happy to have more clarity on this criteria, the examples do show how prescriptive and difficult the criteria may be to satisfy in practice. 
So looking at one example, FDA describes a software function that provides a prioritized list of FDA-authorized depression treatment options to an HCP. The intended use, HCP user, and patient population are clearly identified. The medical information from the patient's record is clearly identified to the HCP to be able to understand what information is being considered. However, according to FDA, this software remains a device function because it does not provide the user with the full report of the clinical studies being relied on, and it doesn't identify the studies that most closely match the patient-specific diagnosis and demographics, as well as other considerations, such as the warning and contraindications from the label. This is a lot of information that has to be provided to satisfy criterion four under FDA's guidance. And problematically, much, if not most, CDS software currently on the market and analyzed under the previously applicable 2019 draft guidance likely would not meet the high bar set in the final guidance. Greg, I'd like to get some of your thoughts on the final guidance and what are some of the key takeaways for you? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. First of all, you and Sarah have done a terrific job highlighting some of the key issues with this with this guidance. And and I will say this guidance is kind of a big deal. I mean, we've been waiting for this guidance for a long time. I mean, we've had several drafts, as you noted, and each time it, there's been a draft, it's kind of changed in fairly significant ways. FDA first promised they were going to come out with this guidance in 2014. Uh, so I think it, we have a, a litany of ropes and gray client alerts over the years saying <laughs> this guidance is coming. Um, and so now, you know, now we have uh, this guidance in, in final form. I think the consequences can be fairly significant in that we have lots of software that has been developed and put on the market over the years in either, you know, before we had any guidance and the total absence of guidance from FDA on CDS, or where we were looking at drafts or kind of really trying to read the tea leaves on a lot of things about where the lines are, about what's regulated as a device and what's not regulated as a device as far as this kind of software. Now, FDA has done a really good job in recent years in trying to bring some order to the chaos of software regulation in general, software as a medical device, and defining, you know, setting out actual policies in writing about what's regulated, what's not regulated, and, of course, Congress stepped in with the Cures Act uh, for, for certain types of software functions. And the trend in general, both from Congress and from the FDA, has been sort of deregulatory. In other words, trying not to overregulate, trying not to have FDA regulate software, whereas you know, the failure of the software or poor design of the software won't be really important or critical as a public health matter. Um, and, and to try not to overregulate to where you are inhibiting innovation uh, unnecessarily. Here with this guidance, I do have some real concerns. A lot of it will be non-controversial, but, you know, many of the aspects that you, you two have pointed out, I think are potentially problematic and might bring some relatively low-risk algorithms into the area of FDA oversight. I mean, it may be that, you know, FDA is sort of reacting to Congress trying to narrow its legal authority. The FDA would always rather have broader authority and then choose, you know, pick and choose when it uses that authority um, versus admitting or conceding that its authority is, you know, it doesn't exist in certain in certain respects. So that there might be some of that going on here. Um, but I do think there are some questions. I think there are some questions about whether some of this interpretation squares with the statute. You know, for example, you know, the criteria where it says that, that the software should be intended to display, analyze, or print medical information, you know, and FDA says that medical information has to be well understood and accepted, really not clear that that's entirely consistent with the statute. It just 
statute says medical information. It doesn't say well understood and accepted medical information. Or, you know, or the, the, the point that you were just talking about, Kelly, where the software provides a specific recommendation. If the, if the basis for that recommendation is very clear and understandable to the, to the healthcare provider who can then assess it in support of making a healthcare decision, you know, why is it that that um, should not be exempt from the statute? And is that really what Congress intended? And, you know, the other thing is that because this is a guidance, the FDA doesn't really have to explain its reasoning in a lot of detail. So some of this, I mean, they, they do give some of their thinking, but it's not like in the preamble to a regulation where they would have to go through each comment and respond uh, in, in a sufficient detail. And so I think we have a series of pronouncements here without a whole lot of analysis or justification behind it. So I think this is there is going to be some controversy on some of this. I think you know this leaves a number of software developers in a difficult position. If they already have software on the market, they may need to reassess it. They may need to <clears throat> determine you know, whether they're going to change their software or whether they are going to keep it on the market as is. And, you know, they could make a judgment that we actually think it meets the statutory criteria. And if FDA challenges us, we will, you know, fight them uh, or dispute that at that point. Um, but that's a risk and not, not every um, not every software developer would want to take that risk. Uh, for those who have products that they are developing that are not on the market yet, you know, similar kind of analysis, right? Do I now have to change it or do I go to FDA? Do I submit a 513G request to FDA and ask FDA how, how they would choose to regulate my device or not? And that can be, you know, that could be a make or break determination in some cases because being an FDA regulated device manufacturer is not, is a big deal. It's not just, you know, the FDA has to review your software before it gets on the market, but it's all of the obligations and duties and requirements that you have to fulfill on an ongoing basis as a medical device manufacturer regulated by the FDA. Um, so these kinds of decisions are these kind of differences can be can be very can be very important. Um, so we'll we'll see kind of what happens from here. I was sort of hopeful that FDA had stated in its um, guidance agenda for 2022 that it was planning a draft guidance called risk categorization for software as a medical device fda interpretation policy and considerations and i was hoping thinking that was an idea where fda might be able to show a little flexibility in some of these things um, in other words say that just because something isn't excluded from the definition of a device by statute that doesn't mean they will regulate it they can still exercise enforcement discretion they have some policies where they do that now but maybe there's more room to do some of that Unfortunately, the FDA has now released their 2023 guidance agenda, and they pulled that draft guidance off, so that's not going to be forthcoming. And instead, they said they're going to pursue further refinement of the framework through the IMDRF, the International Medical Device Regulators Forum, which in the past, their pronouncements have been at best confusing when you, can, when you try to align them with sort of the U.S. FDA regulatory regime. So it seems to me like that was a missed opportunity, unfortunately. Um, and I do think there's going to be some some difficult issues that software developers have to face and possibly some challenges to the FDA's interpretation as well. Great. Thanks, Greg. Um, well, this is certainly an area to watch, and we will continue to monitor all of these developments. But for today, unfortunately, I think we're out of time. Thanks very much, everyone, for tuning into our podcast, Non-Binding Guidance which is brought to you by attorneys in the Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice at Ropes and Gray. For more information about our practice or other topics of interest to life sciences companies, please visit our FDA regulatory and life sciences practice pages at www.ropesgray.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast, Non-Binding Guidance, and other Ropes 
Talk podcast at Ropes and Grace Podcast Newsroom on our website or by searching for Ropes and Grace Podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again for listening.